Oh! Choke points. Let's go! Brought to you by Acton's Quality Roofing. We uh, like to joke about how terrible Seattle drivers are when it rains, but it's true. The first day of soaking rain will turn most of the roads into, well, I don't know if it's American carnage, but... Uh, <laughs> It kind of seems like it, doesn't it? I guess so, yeah. But, I mean, the the mechanism is that uh, cars still drip oil on the roads, right? Oh, gosh, yes. And we haven't had rain for substantial four rain months. For, for four months. Yes. So it's all accumulated there, and it's just ready to float to the surface when the rain falls. Right, and you can see it on, like, when there are dips in the road, there are always little dark patches right there yeah. where little fluids have, have fallen down. And Seattle has had just over a half inch of rain total since June. Think about that. That's four months of dirt, grime, and oil that's just on top of the road, ready to turn your drive into a skating rink. Well, it's the classic oil and water don't mix. So that water is just going to sit on top of the roadways, on top of that oil that's been accumulated on the on the road surfaces since going back to June. And it just creates very, very slick conditions. Talk to our good friend and uh, traffic fill-in from time to time. Meteorologist Ted Beener says how you drive in these upcoming de- conditions will determine exactly how you get through them. Slow down, maintain a very safe uh, following distances. Because there's so much oil on the roads, I wouldn't be surprised to see a lot of hydroplaning going on as we go through this weekend and into next week. Now, I'm not sure if you've ever experienced hydroplaning. I have. It's terrifying, especially when you're going 60 miles an hour and you just lose total control of your car and your tires are not gripping. It's scary, really scary. Don't want to put yourself in that position when the rain comes tomorrow. So you need to watch your speeds. You need to watch your on and off ramps and your turning. You're not going to be able to stop as fast when there's rain on top of these slick roads. The aggressive driving that we've all seen or maybe we are all doing over the last couple of months is just a recipe for disaster in these kinds of conditions. And Beaner says... Don't use cruise control either. I see a lot of people using cruise control to kind of maintain their speeds, but you can't use cruise control when you have a lot of water on the roads uh, because that'll be another threat for hydroplaning and it, you just lose control. Yeah, the cruise control doesn't care what the conditions are, so you got to be in well control of your vehicle. Now, you've got about a day to get your mind right for driving in this wet weather, which is coming. And you also have about a day to make sure that your car is ready for the conditions. First thing to do, replacing your wiper blades. They've been sitting in the hot sun all summer long. They're probably, you know, if they haven't cracked or seen some wear, they haven't been used for a while either. So uh, it's time to change those windshield wipers and check those tires, make sure you have enough tread. Everybody can replace wipers for somewhat cheaply. Getting in to get new tires will likely take a little bit of planning, and that's obviously a lot more expensive. Just be prepared for some spinning wheels on the hills for the next couple of days, and when you're accelerating, away from green lights. Standing water, always a concern. During the first couple of storms, the freeway ruts might catch your tires a bit. You might run into some ponding where storm drains have become clogged. Beaner says this storm will have some wind too, which will bring down some leaves. People need to, you know, in their neighborhoods and out on the roads, need to get out there and clean those leaves away from uh, from the storm drains so that we don't have any ponding of water or even a potential for some uh, flooding into uh, driveways and things like that. To recap, The rain is coming. The roads will be slick. Speeding and tailgating equals rear-end accidents. And the freeway, when that happens, that can become an accordion accident with multiple cars involved. If you don't want to be stuck in endless gridlock tomorrow, 
We all need to change our behavior behind the wheel, and we make, need to make sure that our cars are ready for the conditions. Yeah. So, again, um, rain begins tomorrow around midday, according to what I'm saying. Yeah, now. so we might get through the morning commute tomorrow, which is good, because Ted's filling in for me. I, mean, I think he planned the weather just that <laughs> way. Uh, but the afternoon will be a much different story. Getting home tomorrow night will be very difficult, so you just got to watch it. Where are you off to this time? Uh, we're heading back to Bozeman. we got a, a, a battle of two top five teams in Bozeman, Montana yeah. State and Weber State. Uh, yeah, the t- tops of the big sky. Are they rain out there too? Uh, yeah, yeah. It's going to be pretty. It's going to kind of be about f- maybe forty-three and raining at kickoff. Seattle's morning news, and as ballots go out in the mail for King County voters, elections officials have launched a new tool for vote tracking. Let's find out how this works. Here's Kyra News Radio's Hannah Scott. Good morning. Good morning. Yes, uh, as they were mailing out the ballots yesterday, some of us reporters were invited down to election headquarters in Renton. And as they were mailed out, King County Elections Headquarters Executive Dow Constantine had this message for voters. I want everyone in King County to know that your vote is secure. Our elections are secure. And our democracy will continue to thrive. And King County Elections Director Julie Wise detailed the various levels of security. It's right here on our secure ballot processing floor that every ballot will be verified and counted. And it's right here in King County that we continue to show the rest of the country that vote-by-mail elections are both secure and accessible. This team at elections is made up of dedicated professionals who go above and beyond to not only meet the letter of the law, but to go the extra mile for our voters, because we are your neighbors, your friends, your relatives. We are extensively trained, deeply experienced in running vote-by-mail elections and setting the standard for transparency in elections. Among the transparency efforts? In this coming election, we'll be joined for the first time by nonpartisan or unaffiliated observers through a partnership with the Seattle King County League of Women Voters. We have found that inviting folks in, answering the hard questions, and showing how the process works, we're able to turn at least some of those election skeptics into our greatest advocates. For those who want to observe elections in other ways, you can watch us hard at work on the web cameras we have placed in every area where ballots are processed or stored during an election. Over the past few years, we have continued to upgrade and add to our webcams, and we are now up to 11 locations that are streamed 24-7 on our website throughout the entire processing period. And why is announced that new tool for voters? So often feels like the conversation around elections continues to look back at 2020, an election that has been heavily scrutinized, recounted, and audited, and found to be overwhelmingly accurate over and over again. Our team at King County Elections is looking forward. Today, we are launching ballot alerts. Voters can now right now, go onto our website, to our ballot tracker, and sign up to get texts and emails when their ballot hits another milestone in the process. Now here's what that looks like. They'll get a message when their ballot is mailed, when we receive it back here at King County Elections Headquarters, when their ballot is verified, 
and ready to be counted. And they'll get an alert if there's any issue with their signature so they can get it fixed and make sure that their ballot counts. You can go online to kingcounty.gov elections to sign up. You'll get alerts for this election and you will be good to go for future elections. I also asked her about the Dropbox security and, and what, you know, we hear a lot of uh, kind of concerns about those. She says those are essentially steel tanks. There's really nothing you can do to, to mess with the votes that way. As far as voter turnout, Wise puts voter turnout expectations at roughly 72%. 72% turnout averaging, right, across King County, because as we know, the percentage of turnout varies quite differently across our region. Um, our last even year 2018 comparable election was about a 75% turnout in King County. The reason why we're projecting a little slightly lower than that is because we saw pretty low returns in our primary. And so looking at the primary of 2018 and making some adjustments, that's why we're thinking it's going to be a few percentage points lower. Again, that will vary widely from Seattle to Algona as far as what turnout looks like. But honestly, my hope is 80%. And she actually, she went on for a little bit, and she, in the end, she goes, you know what, I'm going to call it. I'm going to say I think we're going to get to 80%, so we'll see. <laughs> well, 80% is nice, but it also means one in five people just throw their ballots away. Right, it's not enough, right? So, And I, and that was the big message from Dow Constantine yesterday, is participate, people, participate. And we heard a lot from him about the ongoing narrative, the look back at 2020, the, the false narrative around, you know, the stolen election and all of that. And, and he and many others that I've talked to throughout this election season continued hit that our democracy is at stake here. They say a lot is at stake in this election. So uh, really encouraging everybody to participate. I got to tell you, in all the years that I've worked here in this market and covered elections, I, for some reason, I've never been the one to go to the election headquarters and cover like the process and the looking behind the scenes. So yeah. I got to see the sorting machine yesterday that they put. It's cool. They put the, the envelopes in and it sorts and it picks out. So if like your signature doesn't match, which of course it has to they pull that up put it up on top and and then they uh, you know alert you right away so that you can make sure you fix that so you can ensure that your ballot is counted and i'm not sure if she said it in the soundbite that i used but that uh, alert system that you can sign up for mm-hmm. for the text or emails that too will alert you if your signature has an issue so that you can again be very quick about uh, resolving that and ensure that your ballot is counted right and the earlier you vote the easier yes. that is to happen and of course the earlier you vote the the better the chance that your ballot will be counted in that first count that's released early in the evening, and we'll get a, a quicker sense of uh, who wins and who loses. So what are, are there any new rules uh, at all in this state uh, for things like ballot harvesting, for example? Uh, no, not not that I'm aware of. The, uh, really nothing new as far as rules go, I don't think. Have we ever had a problem with people going door to door and saying, uh, you know, because I, I know that the, the parties know this. They know who's voted and who hasn't. And they will mm-hmm. call you if you haven't voted yet. So can they actually come to your door and pick up your ballot? Uh, or I, is it still on you to deliver it to the mailbox or to the ballot box? You are supposed to deliver that to the mailbox. And I don't want to misspeak because I feel like this came up in the last election, in the Seattle election, yeah. that there was some of that going on. So I, I'm not 100% on that law. I believe, though, that there were some folks who were doing that, and it was deemed not illegal. It's, I think it's frowned upon, but I don't believe it was illegal. Yeah, I mean, I would, uh, I understand why people would frown upon that because, you know, you give your vote to a, a stranger, and who knows what happens. I, yeah, I doubt it's that not it's... not so secure. Right. I don't think... It's still very difficult. 
difficult to try and tip the vote on a ma- the massive basis you'd need to do it in most of these uh, elections. But I think we ought to try to iron out all those questions before the big brouhaha starts this year rather than uh, wait until after. But it sounds like that that's what they're trying yeah. to do. He's trying to proactively uh, make uh, help people to trust that their ballot's going to be counted accurately. And they really have. And I have to say, this was this is probably the third round of election security coverage I've done just since the primary, right, where you've had not even just at the King County level, but also at the state level with the secretary of state's office, really doing a couple of roundtables with invited reporters and going through step by step some very kind of high level security stuff to make sure that we as the media can get it out there to the voters that, look, you don't have to worry. These elections are secure. And in fact, especially King County is considered among the top in the nation's when it comes to the security of specifically mail-in ballots. So really uh, efforts to reassure everybody that there's nothing to worry about. Hannah Scott, thank you, Hannah. You bet. Just a tiny bit depressing. little Twilight Zone. I like that. Yeah. I feel like we should renew the Twilight Zone and do like... Did they? Hmm, I thought they did. That's Felix's department. Isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, Our producer's shaking our head, his head. He's saying, yeah, they renewed Twilight Zone. Well, there's the first episode. Your daily dose of kindness is brought to you by Baird. We're in Egan, Minnesota for this one, where one couple is making quite an impression on the town. They have absolutely no idea the impact they're making on the community. By doing what? Every time I see them, they're holding hands. Every time. Holding hands. In fact, the couple holding hands walking their German shepherd are so notable, someone posted about them on the Egan Community Facebook page. To the sweet older couple who regularly walks their German shepherd while holding hands in the town center area, thank you. For years, I've noticed you while driving around Egan. And every time I do, it fills my cup. The comments began pouring in. People also wanting to express gratitude for this effortless show of affection day in and day out. It's just like this uh, steadfast togetherness that gives me that warm feeling when I see them. But who are they? The Facebook page administrator contacted Kara Levin's boy Hooper. And who he found is a couple married 28 years who walk the same five-mile path every day. Yes, holding hands. We both were walkers and when we started dating, started walking, doing our walks and just kind of always held hands. Bob says Pat is his soulmate and that anyone lucky enough to find their soulmate would hold their hand without letting go too. They don't do it for the attention, but they say they're glad it brings joy to the town of Egan. If it makes people happy, then it does that to us too. Do you hold hands? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Sometimes just so we don't fall down. But (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know what? There's a reason for everything. So, yes. Yeah. No, that's my that's that, that is so that's that's one of our jobs is just to make sure we keep each other standing up. That's adorable. The sidewalks here are very uneven. Yeah, you know. tell me. Seven forty eight and now from the G and Ursula show, here is G Scott. Day. Well, I haven't heard your opinion on the poison cloud yet, so what is it? <laughs> Yo. Mm. I've had a headache. Mm-hmm. Like no no, so like like it's like this weird sinus mm-hmm. headache. So you think feeling. it's physically affecting you? Y- yes, but I don't. The thing is, is I I know this sounds weird, but I haven't wanted to talk about it 
yeah, because I didn't want people to think that I'm trying to, and I definitely didn't bring it up on the air, because I don't want people to think, you know, that I'm trying to be dramatic about this, is, oh, okay, so the air quality's bad, sure, but I'm fine. I think you're relatable when you talk about it, really. I mean, because that's the conversation anywhere you go is, oh, my headache, all of that. Yeah. I just have, I guess the difference is, is like I've never in my life, I have felt, have been uh, impacted by what's going on with the weather. I, before, I don't even, I don't even get allergies. I, well, actually, I take that back. Last, uh, this, earlier this year, I did have some allergies going on, which is something that I had never had before COVID. Mm-hmm. And so I had that. But yeah, but as far as my, my opinion on it, I don't know the difference. I don't know how to tell the air quality and measure it. I just go off what they say. Oh, Seattle is number one in the world for the worst air quality. Oh, and then I'm saying to myself, self, maybe that's why your damn head is hurting. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? I was trying to think. I think um, it's human nature to play these games with yourself where it's yeah. like, well, it's worse here. Or can you imagine living like this every day, like the smog of L.A.? And then I remember a time back in like the thick of the pandemic where we couldn't leave our homes because you couldn't go anywhere and everything was closed or you had to wear a mask if you went there or you had to be vaccinated or you couldn't get inside and you couldn't go outside Mm -hmm. because I think it was two years ago when the wildfire season was so bad. I remember it was like reddish brown outside. So I was trying to think like it's bad right now, but it wasn't as bad when we were in the thick of the pandemic and dealing with smoke. However, that's not going to stop me from trying to figure out how do we stop this from happening every season. Colleen, you and I were talking about Vegas. We like to talk about Vegas. It's Love a happy Vegas. place to go. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to talk about Vegas in the sense of, you know how you come in from outside and into the casino, <laughs> and you know where I'm going, that fresh air. Yeah, yeah. That in oxygen. some hotels. In some hotels. Not all the hotels have the filtration. <laughs> Cosmo. Yeah, the Cosmo. Aria. Mandalay Bay is You know what I'm air. saying? Yeah. Venetian. Anyways. I have been saying, I've said this on my show, Ursula and I talk about it all the time, and I continue to say it. I am telling you guys, in the future, I believe that there's going to be a time that you can be like, hey, you want to buy this air? You want to have this air in your home? I'm, I'm not even, I'm being serious. So yeah. you bring up your kids, June and your daughters and everything. Yeah, I, I tweeted yesterday. I said, I have a three-year-old and a nine-year-old, and yeah. they're both trained to be hazardous air breathing, mm-hmm. pandemic ready, yeah. active shooter survivors. It's, Something's wrong here. I At the rate we're going, it's going to be one of those things where adults 30, 40 years from now are going to talk like this. <laughs> Back in my day, we played outside without a mask. <laughs> and they say, Mom, Dad, no, you didn't. Wait, you mean to tell me yeah. you were outside playing without a mask? And June says, yeah. But then all of a sudden, COVID happened and then everything started to get different. And so now, you know, it's you can't just be outside with, without a mask. I like that idea, though. I mean, we, we pipe in fresh water. Why not have air pipes? Air purifiers? With, with uh, Well, we got purifiers. It but. should be a municipal thing, though, because then I fear that like there's the haves and have-nots now with we all generally in this area have access to clean water. We should yeah. all have access to clean air. And so it should be, uh, if it comes to that, yeah. we all need to be equipped with clean air. It cannot be yeah. uh, you are rich enough to have clean air. Do you, do you got, okay, real quick, like five years ago, I never thought to have an air purifier yeah, in my home. Same. Now, today, if you don't have an air purifier in your home, 
I don't know if I want to come over there. You know what we did, though, two years ago is we did the where you um, tape an air filter that you would put in your furnace onto a box fan. We had four of those running. They turned brown within 12 hours. It was so bad. Oh, really? Yeah. So mm. you can do it that way if you can't afford an air purifier. But yeah, I'm looking up best models of air purifiers. I'm going to have those going all summer. Dave, Dave are you thinking that we should, might want to do something to prevent this from happening in yes, the first okay. place? Yes. Well, yeah, perhaps like forest 100%. management and cutting oh, yeah. all the undergrowth well, or perhaps maybe fighting fires like we used to, like allowing airplanes to fly over. Governor Inslee doesn't allow that. He doesn't allow the nope, airplanes nope. anymore? Uh, I thought we, we, were still we, don't, we won't do the big ones anymore like they do to fight fires. And perhaps maybe people should stop setting them. Yeah, because the crews have been saying a lot of these fires burning, like the uh, Loch Katrine fire is in terrain that we just can't access. So I'm surprised the planes yeah, are. We don't, yeah, we just don't do that. It's, oh, it's a tool in the toolbox that. we don't use. I didn't know that. Well, you know what? I, I look at it like this. I would love to tell you guys that I'm an expert on this topic. But truth is, if you're my age or older, you didn't learn this in school. No. This wasn't a topic. And as a matter of fact, those uh, I'm a man James's age. Those There's probably an age group. And maybe you heard global warming. And then when you heard global warming in class and you brought it home and it, probably your parents said, ah, get that out of my house. You know what I mean? <laughs> you know, that, that was happening. But now, again, your kids, Colleen, and uh-huh. your grandkids, Dave, they're going to have to be the ones that really learn and really understand well, it's this already stuff. top of mind for my nine-year-old. Mm. She will ding me if I'm like, well, why are we taking our car, Mom? Well, you should recycle <laughs> that, Mom. Let's yeah, go do some trash that. pickup for my birth. You know how many birthday parties I've been to for seven, eight, nine-year-olds where they want to do trash pickup before they have cake? This is a different generation we're bringing up. Uh, wait, y'all, y'all really do trash pickup? Yeah. <laughs> same with you, Dave? These kids kissing? know... The problem is here, and they're trying to do something about it while we put our fingers in our ears. Good morning to you, Dave. See you at nine. Do, do, do you have one more thought before I go? Nope. Just that it's time for traffic. All right, do you. <laughs> Take a deep breath on your way out. Me it or is, G? I don't know. No, I don't all know. of us. We have filtration here. That's right. <laughs> this is Seattle's Morning News. Dave Ross with Colleen O'Brien. It's uh, amazing. How much history uh, was censored? I'll just speak for my own education. Uh, here's another book that uncensors some of that history. It's called Half American, the Epic Story of African Americans Fighting World War II at Home and Abroad, written by Dartmouth professor Dr. Matthew Delmont. And I grew up thinking, well, of course, that the war was fought by the greatest generation, but that the, the U.S. Army was one of the ways that black Americans were finally integrated into white society. And you're saying that is far from the case. Over the long term, the military has been an important stepping stone for black Americans to get access to full American citizenship. But during the World War II period, the military was still fully racially segregated. Uh, within the army, all the forces were segregated and black Americans were largely blocked from combat roles. They were in supply and logistical roles. Within the Navy, they were only allowed initially to serve in the messman branch, the mess attendant branch, where they essentially served on and waited on, uh, on white officers. And at the start of the war, no black Americans are allowed to serve in the Marine Corps at all. The things are so bad that the Red Cross is even segregating blood donors, even though there's no scientific basis to segregate white blood from black blood. This is true throughout World War II that even though more than 1 million black Americans serve in the war and they are as patriotic as, as any white American, they're forced to serve in, in these segregated units that, that honestly demean them uh, in ways that uh, are just deeply frustrating for, for them as, uh, as servicemen and women. And so part of the goal of my book is to try to talk honestly about that, that history, both to, 
do honor and do justice to these these black veterans, but also to give us a, a more kind of clear eyed perspective on on what America looked like during the World War Two era. Well, and these policies were written down. The military wasn't shy about it. So so tell me about this report by the Army War College. You included a quote in the book. Um, the use of Negro manpower in the war uh, was one of the uh, was one of the uh, subjects. Uh, the cranial cavity of the Negro is smaller than the white. He believes himself inferior to the white. These were reports actually written by military people that that is is how they decided to segregate the forces. Exactly. So even though black Americans have participated in every military conflict the United States has ever been a part of and have performed bravely, including performing bravely in, in World War One, between World War One and World War Two, the military actually does everything they can to push black Americans out of the service. And part of that is the report that you just read. Uh, this is a report from 1925 from the Army War College, where they write down in explicit detail why they think Black Americans don't have the intelligence, courage, and bravery to be leaders or really to serve in the military and combat roles at all. They rely on all sorts of uh, racial prejudice, on pseudoscientific theories about cranial capacity and uh, biological differences between the races. And they, they write this down as the official training manual for a generation of white officers. And what's so deeply unsettling about this is that it's not like it was a handful of racist individuals or an isolated clique within the army that believed this. This was the official position of, of the U.S. military. And so you had one generation of white officers, primarily those who came from World War I, writing down their extremely racist beliefs and then handing off those beliefs to the next generation of white officers, almost all of whom served and led in World War II. And so when we try to get a sense of what were white military leaders thinking of the time, um, this document's a really good example of that. I think the thing that's kind of crazy making as a historian is that there was no good reason for the military to be racially segregated. It served no strategic purpose. It actually made everything more logistically complicated because they had to do everything in duplicate. Uh, and they actually wasted um, a lot of the manpower they could have relied on. They, they turned away black volunteers and draftees who had language skills or who had um, electronic skills who could have been very useful in the war effort, uh, deciphering telegraphs. The only reason the military remained racially segregated was because they wanted to try to appease white racial prejudice through the war. I mean, that the report you cited is, is one of the best examples we have of that. So do you think this because this history is not taught to me at all <laughs> when I was going to school? Same. So how do you think that the, the history that you've uncovered of World War Two should be taught in school? So I would hope that regardless of one's uh, political identification, that you would believe that we deserved to honor Black World War II veterans, and we deserve to talk about this history honestly. Part of talking about the history honestly is recognizing that for, for Black Americans, Black World War II veterans in particular, patriotism and protest always went hand in hand. Black Americans have always been extremely patriotic, but that patriotism has also meant that Black Americans have challenged the country to actually vote up to its ideals. So I think that's one of the stories that comes through clearly in World War II. It's almost mind-boggling that more than a million Black Americans served in World War II, despite being treated horrendously, both in the military and outside the military. Despite that, that terrible treatment, they still played vital roles in helping America and the Allies win the war. But then when those Black veterans came home, they wanted to also fight for civil rights because they knew it wasn't enough to just have freedom and democracy abroad. We had to have freedom and democracy at home as well. I think, honestly, that some of the challenges we face as a country right now is because we've been afraid to reckon honestly with that part of our nation's history. We would prefer to think that somehow World War II was a simpler, more peaceful, more unified time. Yeah. The reality is it was anything but. Um, and I think 
if we have any chance of crafting a, a functional multiracial democracy going forward, we have to understand this history of, of World War II as it actually happened. The reason to focus on this part of the story is because this is the part of the story that has too often been left out of our textbooks. It's what's too often left out of the way we talk about the history of our country. But I think even more importantly, it's not just about adding the story back in, but I think once we add the story back in, it really encourages us to ask different questions about what the war was about, how did different groups benefit from it, and how did World War II help to shape the country we live in today? Other than digging up this history and writing about it, uh, how has the military atoned for this type of treatment? Or is it still perpetuated today for, say, women in combat or, or individuals who are trans who want to serve the country? And one of the things I try to make clear in the book is as bad as things were during World War II in the military, and, and they were certainly bad, when the military desegregates in 1948, due to the pressure that's brought by civil rights activists and forcing President Truman to sign that executive order. That actually then positions the military on more of the leading edge nationally in terms of racial equality. So the military becomes the first federal branch to become desegregated, and that opened up doors in terms of the Brown versus Board decision, or opens up doors in corporate America, opens up doors in higher education. And so I certainly wouldn't want to say that racial discrimination doesn't exist in the military or that other forms of discrimination based on gender or sexuality don't exist. But the military became much more forward-looking coming out of World War II because they recognized that segregation was bad. It made the military a less effective fighting force. I think today we still see the military wrestling with how do you try to actually involve and, and make space for and, and take advantage of the, the patriotism and skills of, of all Americans, regardless of race, ethnicity, um, gender, sexuality. All Americans who want to serve in the military have something that they can contribute. I think the military right now continues to try to navigate what it means to try to um, be a force that truly represents the country and can take advantage of the the skills and capacities of, of all Americans. Dartmouth professor Matthew Delmont, the author of Half American, the epic story of African-Americans fighting World War II at home and abroad. Matthew, thank you very much. Yeah, thanks for having me. You can Seattle's Morning News. Good morning. I'm Colleen O'Brien, along with Dave Ross and Chris Sullivan. Rachel is here, and she spoke to one of the singers from a generation of millennials and Gen Xers. We love her. It's Jewel. All we gotta do is dance to see is back with her first full-length album in seven years. It's called Free Wheelin' Woman. Uh, Jewel has sold 30 million albums worldwide. I think a lot of us know her first one from 1995 with Who Will Save Your Soul. There you go, yeah. And that was one of the best-selling debut albums of all time. So I was thrilled to talk to her. She was like a voice of my high school years. She is very funny on TikTok and Instagram if you're looking for a new follow, like unexpectedly funny. Um, And she also had a very interesting childhood. So she grew up in middle of nowhere, Alaska. They had no electricity. They had no plumbing. Yeah, my family were homesteaders, legit, real homesteaders, pioneers, only eating what you could kill or can. We had a garden. We did subsistence fish netting. You set out a huge net at low tide and then the tide comes in and back out. And then you just go pick fish out of your net. I remember getting like 75 king salmon We had a cow that we would milk and we had fresh milk and butter. Um, We used everything. You know, I was the kid that went to school with cow tongue sandwiches. There was a very sacred aspect to all of life, the interconnectedness, the closeness to earth. And you shouldn't take more than you needed. It never 
failed to disturb my father to take a life. My family was not that redneck. And it was like, you know, that is not how I was raised. There was always a silent moment of reflection. The, the moment we took an animal's life, it was heavy. Yeah. Really heavy. You know, it's a heavy thing to take a life. One of Jewel's favorite foods to this day is a dish made with bear lard. And I'm not going to reveal that dish. You're going to have to listen to the latest episode of Your Last Meal to find out. Will you at least tell us what bear lard tastes like compared to regular old lard? Well, I haven't tasted it, but it's supposed to taste very neutral if it's fresh. And neutral. it's a very desired item when oh. one is bear hunting. So this episode actually has a lot to do with bear hunting and bear meat and bear fat, things that I am very unfamiliar with. So I called Clay Newcomb. He is the publisher of Bear Hunting Magazine. That's a magazine that exists. Uh, he's a bear hunter and he hosts a podcast called the Bear Grease Podcast. I live in Seattle and I do a lot of hiking. And this time of year, you do see bear hunters out there. Like I ask people, what are you hunting for? And it's usually bear. Uh, and it's really interesting, the psychology, because I'm not a hunter. And my first reaction is horror because I think bears are so cute. But then I think about my values, which is I'm not pro factory farming right. and bears are not an endangered species. These bears are not at all. And I think, well, if this is how they're getting their meat, maybe they're not even going to the grocery store. They're actually doing a better job than I am. Why am I so reactive to this? Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. I really like the way you've processed through that because some people have a hard time getting to where it sounds like you're at. All these labels that we pay big bucks for in the supermarket, organic, sustainable, ethically raised, ethically harvested, like all, all these terms that we go to Whole Foods and pay major bucks for is what the hunters go out and do on our own. And people that don't understand or don't have some historical connection to utilizing bear meat, bear grease, bear fat, bear hides inside of their world, it's kind of like, why would you kill that animal? And most people would not associate bear meat as being something that would be desirable. But Rachel, bear meat actually fueled the American frontier early on, probably more than any other species. And bear meat is fantastic. And we utilize more of a black bear in terms of its hide, its fat, and its meat, probably more than any other species that's hunted. Of course, Native Americans used all parts of the bear and everyone in America ate it until the early 1900s. So we talked about why we stopped eating bear in this country and so much more, so much more conversation with Jewel that doesn't only have to do with bear hunting. I couldn't have guessed in a thousand years that bear meat would be the topic of the Jewel podcast. I know. It's actually... <laughs> only this, Rachel could draw yeah, that connection. Seriously. But that's the honest... I mean, I used to every, every year do a Thanksgiving show where I took calls from anybody who actually killed their own turkey for uh-huh. their own food. That's, that's the most... If you're, if you're going to be a meat eater, that's the most honest way to do it. I mean, we've talked about this so many times, you know, how far away we are from our food and from nature. And one of the things we talk about in this episode, I don't want to go too deep into it, but it's about a conversation I had with one of our colleagues where she said she would rather eat an egg from a supermarket than an egg that came from a neighbor's chicken because she thought it was gross that it came out of the chicken. We are so brainwashed by companies to think that things that come out of a factory are clean and good and natural things are dirty and gross. It's really fascinating psychology. Has she ever had a fresh egg? Not sure, but this all came about because she had some at her desk and she did not want them and she gave them to me. Holy (laughs) moly. I was shocked because those are expensive and beautiful and 
Superior. You can listen to this new episode of Your Last Meal, my podcast with Jewel. Anywhere you get podcasts, please leave a review and subscribe. That would be so helpful. It's how we keep the show going. Go to yourlastmealpodcast.com or we made it easy. You can just text Jewel to 888-973-CAIRO, 888-973-5476. Rachel Bell. Thank you, Rachel. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Seattle's Morning News. I'm Dave Ross. And I'm Colleen O'Brien. Thanks for listening to the show's podcast. We're happy you're here. And you can keep up with the show and find some of the stories from today online at MyNorthwest.com.